Amen. Thank you, Miss Anna. And we're in for another special treat this morning, Creason. And, uh, well, I can't get all your names straight sometimes, but Gracie and Ellie, they're all coming to, Smith are coming to sing for us this morning. So we're looking forward to that. Y'all come and share with us. Um, Before we sing this song, I just wanted to give a little bit of insight as to why we chose it, because it's probably not one that many of you have heard. Um, A couple of years ago, this song really spoke to me when I was going through a really difficult season of disappointment and of heartbreak and struggle. And this song helped me realize that whenever I heard it, I had become really angry and bitter towards God because he had taken something away from me that I had wanted. And I think that sometimes we all go through seasons of life where we need to be reminded that God is worthy to be trusted and he's in control and that he works things together for our good even though we can't see it in the moment. So our hope is that as we sing this, you'll be encouraged or convicted, or maybe it'll just serve as a reminder that we serve an all-powerful God who truly has our best interest at heart. There we go.
Thank you guys for blessing us with that this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, if you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one underneath the chair you're sitting in or one of the chairs close to you. But if you would, please stand with me as we honor God and the reading of his word together this morning. As they sang in their song just now, he knows better than we do. And thankfully, our Lord God has chosen to speak to us and tell us exactly who he is and, and what we should do. So thankful for his grace this morning and his word. Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to begin reading it at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I'm going to pray again. Let's pray together. Father, your ways are perfect. Your ways are higher than our ways. You know better than we do. You see everything at once. And Lord, you've demonstrated your trust or demonstrated that how we can trust in you, Lord, through the finished work of Jesus. So, Lord, based on this great love that you've demonstrated to us while we were still yet sinners, then, Lord, how can we not trust you and, and seek to do what your word says? And in the passage before us, Lord, even in times when We've sinned against one another. Lord, you've given us instruction about how that's supposed to be handled. So, Father, help us to love you and love one another enough to do what your word says, to trust you. Lord, teach us this morning and help us to rejoice, to rejoice in the truth that this says about you. And grant us obedience. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. I don't watch the news very much, but I imagine our heads would pretty much have to be stuck in the sand to know that an impeachment inquiry has been made against our president uh, by the Democratic Party. And when an impeachment process takes place, there are certainly it's a process. There are rules to follow if you're going to impeach someone. And who knows how that'll end up. The goal should be in an impeachment process that to find out the facts and that justice would take place. 
Unfortunately, in a political climate, often the goal is not that. The goal is not any such uh, search for justice, but rather, uh, on the other hand, for some, it's a political agenda to indict someone, and the real goal is to get that person out of office. So I'm not sure, I can't speak for all those involved in wanting to impeach our president, but I do know this. When it comes to the process within the church about how we are to uh, handle cases in which believers have sinned against one another, there are rules and there are steps that we're to go by as a church family that are found not in the Constitution, but are found in something much higher and much, with much more supreme, infinite authority than any human document, and that is the Word of God. And in the Word of God, our goal is not to seek to have seek, uh, uh, solely retribution or, uh, or to punish someone or to get them out of office or whatever that might be, but our goal is found in verse 15, if you look in your Bible. If this person listens to us, it says what, what's gonna happen at the end of verse 15? What's, what's the final few words you see in your Bible right there? You have gained your brother. And this is the goal of the process. So as we think of the main thrust of, and point of the verses before us this morning, again, been working through the Gospel of Matthew for about two years now, and this is where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we think of the steps that we're supposed to take in relation to what happens when someone sins against us, Really the main thrust and main point and main goal uh, or, or main point of these verses is this, is we're to love, love your brother by following the Lord's rules of love. We're to love one another by following the Lord's rules of love. And so before I share with you those four steps and some pastors or books you might read or hear from might say there's five steps or three steps here, but... I want to share with you before I get into those again this morning, because we looked at the first one last Sunday, that there are four preliminary principles I feel like I need to share with you somewhat again, and, and some might be a little bit new. So let me go over those with you. Four preliminary principles you can jot down real quick or just listen to very carefully that are based on what Scripture says. One of those principles would be this, apply these rules that we're about to look at, apply, apply these rules lovingly not loosely nor legalistically. So apply these rules lovingly. Remember, what's it say at the end of verse 15? The reason I'm saying that is because of what it says at the end of verse 15. If they listen to you, if you go to them alone, you've gained your brother. So this is supposed to be applied lovingly. In fact, if you look at verse 13 and 14, you're seeing the love of the Father. If you look at it, Verse 13, if he finds it, he's talking about a sheep that's went astray. I say to you about this shepherd, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So we see that the God our Father, his love for his sheep, his little ones, is like that of a shepherd going and searching for one sheep that went astray. You can see that he wants his little ones to be cared for. This is a context of love. And so should it be for us as we seek to love the little ones of God, our brothers and sisters who may have offended us. Our goal is to love them and to gain them. And so these rules should be applied lovingly, not loosely. In other words, not avoiding these rules, not saying, well, I don't need to do that or I'm not going to do that. And neither should they be applied legalistically. As if, okay, here's the rules and I'm going to get my brother and so I'm going to rush through these rules 
so that I can get it to the church and get them out of the church and embarrass them. No, that's a legalistic application to rush through these steps. And it would also be applied loosely if we indefinitely put off, the, put off these steps as well, which often happens in the church at the same time. We just don't ever want to get to any of them or some of them. So apply these rules lovingly, not loosely or legalistically. A second principle I want to share with you again very quickly is don't ask the wrong question. The wrong question when it comes to thinking about a brother or sister in Christ that's, a, that's offended you, the wrong question is to say, who's supposed to take the first step? First step is to go to someone and talk to them alone. Who's supposed to take the first step? And so we begin to ask ourselves, well, he should come to me or she should come to me. And then that person, maybe they're thinking the same thing. No, they, they offended me, so they need to come to me. And if you look at this passage of scripture here, what's it say in verse 15? If your brother sins against you, you're to go to them. They did the sinning, so you go to them. But if you look in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, if you have a gift, you're gonna leave at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift to the altar and go to them. So here you got both. You got one brother, this is the sinning brother over here. He sinned against me, the Bible says, I must go to him. And then in Matthew chapter five, the Bible says, all right, if you're about to worship God, you remember, I did something to upset my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. I need to stop what I'm doing. I need to go to them. So the wrong question to ask is, who's, going, who's supposed to go first? The right question, the biblical question is to ask is, who's going to do it? Who's going to obey the Lord? Who's going to go first? Who's going to take the first step of love? And the answer should be, I am. I'm going to obey the Lord. I've been offended or someone has offended me. Now I'm going to go and do what God says and quit all this hobnobbing around and being wishy-washy and trying to overthink things and just do what the Bible says. A third preliminary principle I want to remind you of is this, and get this from Ken Sandy has written a book called Peacemaking, which is a wonderful read, a hard, I'll maybe say a wonderful read, but a wonderful tool and gift to the church. And one of the quotes in his book, simply it's a principle found here, is keep the circle when it comes to dealing with a brother or sister that's offended you or like or vice versa, keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Our goal here is not to embarrass someone or make this a big public thing, but keep the circle as small as possible of people that know about this as long as possible. That doesn't mean to keep it, put it off indefinitely to where it's never brought to a public place if this person is unrepentant, right? A fourth principle is before you ever take that first step of love, you need to ask yourself, can I overlook this? Is this an offense I can overlook? And that's a biblical principle, folks. That is found in the book of Proverbs. It's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. And so there's a lot of times in relationships, right, where we choose to say, you know what? That's irritating to me, but I can, I can let that go, right? And sometimes that's just what we need to do. Just, just overlook it. I mean, if we're going if we're, if we're to legalistically apply these principles, then man, I'm going to have people coming to me all the time. <laughs> and you're going to have people coming to you all the time. Because we all do things that irritate each other and get on people's nerves and, and we wish they wouldn't do that and wish they hadn't said it that way. But then we get to thinking, well, they really didn't mean that and maybe it's just me. So we need, and so sometimes 
Am I, am I able to overlook this? Maybe before you ever take that first step of love to go to them alone, you need to go talk in confidence without even mentioning a name to, a, to someone who would give you godly counsel. And you can say, hey, this person said this or this person did this and I'm wrestling. If I'm, is this something I really need to go talk to them about? And if this person loves Jesus, loves his word, is a, is a, is a godly person, Hopefully they'll give you the, the counsel that's needed. So sometimes you do need to go seek godly counsel before you go talk to this person alone to clarify whether or not you're able to overlook it or not or whether or not you're being too sensitive yourself or see your own heart, your own role in contributing to this sin so that you can go and say, look, I'm sorry for what I did, but I also need to say what you said was also offensive to me. Help get the moat out of your eye, that, that log out of your eye, right, that Jesus talks about. So now that the four preliminary principles have been, you've been reminded of, there are four steps of love that I see here in the passage of Scripture that Jesus gets to. And I'm not going to get to all of them again this morning. I said that last week, but I'm going to give them to you right now. And when we looked at the first one last Sunday, we'll look at two this Sunday, and we're going to look at the next one next Sunday because if we're not to rush through these steps of love, then I see no reason to rush through these steps in preaching about them. Because I think this is one of the most critical issues in the life of a healthy church. But here's the four steps. Let me give them to you for you obsessive note blank filler outers, okay? Again, first step of love is to love them enough to go to them alone. That's verse 15, the first part of verse 15. Love them enough to go alone. Second step of love, love them enough to return with one or two others. Love them enough to return with one or two others. Number three, love them enough to tell it to the church. That's number three. And number four, found in verse 17, love them enough as a church to treat them like an unbeliever. To treat them like an unbeliever. And as the Lord leads, I'll plan to preach on that next Sunday. So the first step of love, a brother has sinned against us or perhaps we've sinned against a brother, if you look at Matthew chapter 5. But if a brother sins against you, the first step of love is love him enough to go alone. And so we're assuming now that we've loved enough, we went to him alone, we've talked to him about their fault, maybe we've, we've confessed our own faults, we've, we've sought to do it the right way, maybe even we have went back again, we've prayed about the conversation, they didn't repent, they didn't see any wrongdoing, maybe they don't even, maybe, may, and maybe they responded right, but they just didn't really, don't even see what they did was wrong. So you go back and you think about it and you pray about it, maybe you seek God and counsel again, maybe you go back and you do step one with them again alone. It's okay, you should do that, right? And hopefully you can do that in person when possible. Let's say you've done step one, you've loved them enough to go alone, and they don't want to hear it. How frustrating is, any of you kids, you teenagers, your kids can get frustrated when your parents say to you, I don't want to hear it. Now I say that because I say that to my kids sometimes. Come with me complaining that this person has done this person, this person looked at me, this person breathed on me, you know, this person touched me. I don't want to hear it. Work it out yourself, right? And my response is not always right in saying that. It's very exasperating for my kids. And, and, uh, but sometimes that's what they do need to hear and sometimes what your kids need to hear is that you don't want to hear. And think about how that is sometimes when 
you might go to someone and, and you try to talk in the right way, the right spirit, and here in this case, they don't want to hear it. Verse 16, look at it. It says this, but if he does not listen. So this morning what we're looking at is what happens? You've went to your brother who sinned against you. What do you do if a brother refuses to listen to you when you've went alone? So there's two, two additional steps at this point you need to take. Step number two then is love them enough to return with one or two others. So you've went to them alone. Maybe you've even went back again. They don't seem to get it. Maybe they've been adamant that they are not going to repent. They're not going to restore. They're not going to do whatever. There's been no reconciliation. So you love them enough to return with one or two others. Now, I'm not making that up because the Bible says that, don't it? Look at the rest of verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two brother, others along with you. You see that? It's in the Bible. That every charge, here's the purpose for it. See the, see the word that in the middle of verse 16, T-H-A-T? That, here's the purpose, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here you take one or two with you. If there's three of you, then there's two or three witnesses to the conversation. That every charge may be established. So two things quickly I want to say about what the Bible says about taking one or two others with you, about the purpose for it. That every charge may be established. One of the things in bringing those one or two other people with you that should be Christians, and I would say even members of the church that you go to, and maybe even telling that person that you've went to alone, maybe you went back to them again, maybe you've seen, look, we've talked, you're saying you, you don't see any fault here. I'm going to tell you that I see the need, and you don't have to do this part, but sometimes it's wise and gracious to do it. I see the need at this point to, to get somebody else involved with us. Do you have any suggestions? If they're a brother or sister from another church family, he says there's someone from your church that could come and mediate in the same church family. Hopefully it would be somebody godly within that church family to be a part of it. Remember, you're trying to keep the circle as small as possible. One or two other people that could come and sit and listen. The ones you take, though, are there to listen. It says that you may, that every charge may be established. They're there to listen to the conversation, to listen to the facts. If it goes beyond this, it's good to have two or three witnesses to what has actually been said between the two people. Because you know how people get things twisted up. Well, this person said this. Well, yeah, they said it, but they didn't say it the way you think they said it in a hateful, mean-spirited way. Or no, but actually, I was there and I know exactly what they said. You're misrepresenting what they said. So you see the purpose then that every charge may be established. Also, bringing that one or two witnesses to help this other person see their sin. They may actually take a role in saying, look, look, brother, what, what you're doing is not right. This is what your brother has said, and you're refusing to, don't you see this? And so going to them with another brother or sister may be a means of them seeing the weightiness of their sin, and they may repent, and you've gained your brother. The ones you take are there to listen then. The ones you take are also there to talk. They're there to say something too. Like I just said, they may have to say, listen, don't, don't you see the problem here? They may, they may have to say, you brought them along. They may look at you and say, you need to listen too. <laughs> you both need to listen to each other. You're not listening. You're not communicating. So they play this kind of mediating role for the purpose of reconciliation. 
So the ones you, you take are there to talk. You say, where do you see that in the Bible, preacher? Well, look at verse 17 in your Bible. What's it say in verse 17? The first part of it. If he refuses to listen to them. Well, if he's refusing to listen to them, what's that imply? That they've said something. That they've went and by their presence and probably by their verbal, by their, by their verbal communication, they are saying something with their lips. They're there to listen to clarify the conversation, to clarify what's being said, and they're there to talk, to implore, to repent, to clarify what's happened, to mediate, and, and, uh, and to seek help to come up with a resolution or to confront this person with their sin and implore them to repent. So if you're going to take one or two others along, you need to be real careful about taking your best buddy with you. Maybe your best buddy is the, is the godliest person you know. But sometimes that person might be a little biased because they're your best buddy. So maybe ask the other person, who could we have to step in? But again, you don't even have to ask them to do that. The Bible just says go and take one or two along with you. So be sure you take some godly people who will not tell you what you want to hear, but will come and listen and give godly counsel. So that's step two. Love them enough to return with one or two others. Hopefully, that'll resolve the thing. They come together. The humility of another brother or sister being involved in the conversation might be a means for which this sinning brother admits their sin and says, I will do this. Or I, there's nothing I can do to, to, to restore the situation, to undo what I've done, but I'm so sorry and I will, I will be more careful in the future. I will, I, I will tr please pray for me. I, I, will, I will try to never do this again. That's what we want, right, church? That, that's a step of love that Scripture says to take. But if this sinning brother refuses to listen, we're told in step three then to love him enough to tell it to the church. So again, before we move on to step three, depending on the urgency of the matter, there could be legal things involved here. There could be safety issues involved here. There's a, there's a whole lot of things that, that we may not think of when it comes to applying these principles that need to be considered wisely. So there may be an urgency we're not aware of, but depending on the urgency of the situation, remember there's no rush to tell it to the church. You may even go back with one or two again. Give, the time, give this person time to process what these one or two others have said. You know, sometimes people just need time to sit back and think about what was said and process it. And then maybe contact them again and say, hey, hey brother, have you thought any more about what we talked about? Or maybe they'll call you and contact you or, or show up at your doorstep. How much would that glorify God? Give the person time to process, follow up, revisit. Yet, this is what I must say, yet it, neither does this imply in these verses, there's no implication here, to neglect the next step or put it off indefinitely to tell it to the church. To just throw up our hands and say, well, I love my brother, I've done what I can do, and that's all I'm going to do. No, there's another step here. And it's to tell it to the church. Love the brother enough to tell it to the church. Verse 17 tells us that. Look at it. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Notice he says tell. The other two steps he said go to them. But here he says tell it to the church. The church doesn't go to them, all right, but you tell it to the church. That seems to me to imply that the entire local church assembly is being made aware of this person's sin. Not just, not just the leadership in the church. However, 
That doesn't mean to legalistically apply these principles means the very next step, the whole church has to know about it in some closed business meeting. No, there's some things to consider just practically and wisely about this. So let's think about this. What would, if you've been sinned against by a believer, you've, steps one and two, have, have, you've went through them, and now you see the need to follow through with step three, what would you do here at First Baptist Church in Mount Carmel? A lot of times the pastors and deacons will already be involved at this point, right? They may be the one or two you've brought along with you or sought godly counsel for. But if that's not the case, you need to make probably the pastor or pastors and deacons aware of the situation. You need to come and talk to them first just so they're aware of it because you should not stand up on a Sunday morning without having ever talked to the pastors and deacons and say, guess, hey, I got something to say before we dismiss this morning. My brother's offended me and I want everybody to know about it, right? That would be sinful. That, that's not motivated from a heart that desires restoration, but merely to embarrass the brother or sister. So it makes a lot more sense that you at least make sure the leadership is aware of the situation so that they can proceed to give the best counsel on how to go about telling it to the church. So make sure the leadership knows about it. And the leadership here at First Baptist would assess the situation, perhaps, as a means of grace, before they tell it to the church in a public way, they may even decide, listen, we want to go and talk to this person. And I think that would be absolutely fine and even a responsible thing to do for church leadership to do if they've not been involved up to this point and talk to this individual before making it public. But assuming that's happened, the leadership knows about it, the leadership's taking the necessary intermediate steps and wise steps, then at that point, the pastors, and along with deacons and would tell the offended believer, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tell the church Sunday uh, that we're going to have a closed business meeting the next Sunday or this Sunday night, whatever our bylaws say about how long you have to wait to have business, special business meetings, where only our members could be present. And in that closed business meeting, uh, that's where probably the pastor would, or, the, or maybe one of the deacons would stand before the church family and would say, and I've had to do this before, not in this church, but have to say, you know, many of you know why we're here already. We've tried to keep the circle as small as possible, but that's not always the case. But I'm going to tell you why we're here. Here's the charges. Here's, here's, the, here's the issue. Here's the, and you name the individual. Maybe the individual is even present. One time I had to do this, really two times, the individual was present. Um, and you say, so-and-so we love, we have talked to, and they have, uh, they have refused. But there's no indication of repentance. Even to the point, we're not, we're not even confident that this person is, is, is a true believer or not. <laughs> now you're treading on some. Now you're, now you're getting some people's feathers ruffled who are going to be sitting out in the congregation when I say that, saying, whoa, we don't... We ain't don't judge nobody. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, what have we to judge with that dude with judging outsiders? Judge those within the church. But again, we're not saying in that closed business meeting this person's not a believer. We're just saying it's come to the point where their steps have been taken and here's what's been done up to this point. And this, this brother, and we're still calling him brother, this brother, this sister in Christ, 
they, they have still not repented. We don't see evidence of repentance. So we're telling it to you. We're telling it to you. That's, that's what the church would need to do. And then notice what it says next. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's step four, which we'll get to next Sunday, the end of that. But notice he's supposed to listen to the church. So again, that means the church is to say something to the individual. Maybe that takes place in the context of that special business meeting. It would seem to me that at that point, the wisest step for the local church to take would be to say in that public business meeting, now church, you've been made aware of this. And we're not taking any formal action, even tonight. Depending on the urgency of the situation, right? It may be different. That the formal action of vote needs to be taken that night to remove that person as a member. But tonight, we're not doing that. We love this person. And what we want to urge you is we want to urge you to go and talk to them. Because it says, tell it to the church. And even if he refuses to listen to the church. So what we're doing at this point, it may seem, it may be wise at this point to give the church a week, two weeks, maybe a little longer, to go and talk to this person. Maybe implore them even in that meeting itself. But over the next couple of weeks or however much time, and give the church maybe some, a deadline and say, you know, in three weeks we'll have to revisit this issue. If we, but we want to urge the church to pray for this individual and implore them to repent. But if that's not taking place, then we're going to move on to step four and treat this person as if they're an unbeliever. Now, folks, that's just as black and white as I can make it, but it's not as black and white as we'd like it to be in application. That's why we don't want to apply these rules legalistically. We certainly don't want to apply these rules loosely but lovingly. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, notice it says any transgression. <laughs> Sometimes we're just concerned about the big sins. It says any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Watch out for yourself. You don't get caught up in their sin, what he says the rest of the verse, but do it in a spirit of gentleness. Again, our goal as a church family is to love one another enough to restore them, not to get them out of office like an impeachment process or to have vengeance. Our goal is to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, to gain our brother. You say, Pastor, what are we doing as a church to implement these practices now? Well, I think there's some things we're not doing that we could be doing. I think our bylaws need to be updated, as I've mentioned now, for probably a year and a half, two years. Um, and was asked by our deacon body to preach on that last this time last year, and I did. And so here we are again, and I think that needs to be done um, to, for clarity's sake about some things. But one of the things that we, we did last year is we, we began a care ministry that Lynn Saltzgaver leads up. And her and some other, le other ladies uh, in our church meet on Wednesday. In fact, I think y'all are meeting this Wednesday, right, Miss Lynn? And they come and they write letters to our church family. A lot of those letters are letters simply of encouragement. People that have been sick, or maybe we haven't seen them a couple of weeks, we're concerned. But, but, but that originated in the fact that we were aware of so many in our church family that are members of the church who don't go to church here anymore. And we began that care ministry as a, as a means of contacting folks that are no longer attending our church. And we're not even sure where they're at, some of them. Yet, we say as a church family and membership, what are we saying when we, we accept someone as a member? We believe, based on what this person says and how this person lives, we believe this person's a Christian. And we're continuing to say that about hundreds of people who become members of First Baptist Church, and we don't even know if they go to church anymore. 
but yet we still say they're members. We still believe they're Christians based on what they say and how they act, and yet they don't do what the Bible says in relation to coming to church as far as we know. And so a step of love for us as a church has begun to just simply, that, through that particular ministry, is one means of trying to contact some folks and say, hey, we love you. We'd like to see you back. But we can't, that process can't go on indefinitely. There has to be some action taken. So that's one of the things. But let me share this with you. Anna, Anna, you were playing holy, holy, holy this morning. I was listening, all right? Sometimes I get my notes out and I write things down. It's not because I'm not listening. It's actually because it's triggered a thought in my heart. And she began to play that. And I thought of the words of that, holy, holy, holy. The angels, you know, the cherubim and seraphim, they cover their eyes. They can't even look upon him. Our God is enthroned in the highest. And yet it is this God, this God who goes to great lengths to rescue his little ones, his sheep. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 14. He talks about the little ones. Those that are great in the kingdom of God are the little ones. Not little tiny children, but people who are like little tiny children in that they depend upon God. They trust God. Those are his, and he loves them. He loves them so much. If you go back and look, it says to us about this God who is holy, 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 who's not, who's, whose being is not contingent. That's the reason he's called the I am. Just I am, Right? doesn't need us yet look at what he does this is a God who searched for search for his little ones who've went astray just like a shepherd would look for a sheep that's gone astray right that's what it says in verse 12 and 13 if what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep verse 12 and one of them's gone astray did he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go a search of the one that went astray verse 13 and if he finds it truly i say to you what's he do he rejoices over it he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray and then he says in verse 14 what's your bible say so in other words in the same way, verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This one who is robed in majesty, who reigns eternally, whose love is for us is indefinite in, in Jesus Christ. He loves us and comes and rescues us. Look to the lengths in which he goes like a shepherd looking for his sheep. He leaves the glory of heaven. He comes in flesh, robed in flesh, lays down his life for his sheep, dies for them, raises, is risen again, is coming again. Says he doesn't want his little ones to perish. In Ezekiel 18, I was reading this morning in my own devotional time. He says about his people, about his people Israel, it's not my will that any of these should die. He doesn't, he doesn't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter chapter 3 basically says the thing, same thing. It's not his will that any of these should perish. He says about his elect, about his children. As he goes after them. He loves them. And so now he comes in verse 15 and he's saying to his church, these disciples, he's saying, if you've got a brother who sins against you, I want you to show them who I am by going to them alone. 
Jesus left the glory of heaven. Now you go to them alone. You can do that. And if necessary, tell it to the church so the church can go to them. And as one pastor said, it's to communicate to them, this is, this is the God who we serve. God loves me enough. The God whom I've sinned against loves me enough that my brother would come to me alone or come with one or two others to confront me in my sin. It should be humbling to that brother or sister and lead them to repentance. Or if that step is not enough, that the whole church, maybe over a couple weeks, maybe in one assembled gathering, would implore this believer, please, we love you, repent. What's God doing? God's sending an army. He loves that sheep. He loves that believer so much, at least that professing one so much, that he would send an army after you to rescue you from your sin. This is what God says to do because God loves you. God loves his little ones. He loves the ones he laid down his life for. And if we are to communicate that to one another, and brothers and sisters, we must do what the scripture says. If we communicate that to the lost in our community, that God loves them, that God will save them, then we cannot contradict that truth by how we treat one another who continue in our own sin within our own church family. So brother, sister, do what the God's word says to do. Do what it says. Take the first step of love or take that second step. If you need to come and talk to your pastor or your deacon, you come and do that. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, eternal. He wasn't created by God. He didn't come into existence. He has always been. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And he came to this earth to glorify his father and to rescue you from your sin. He died as a substitute on the cross. We sang this morning, your grace is enough. Jesus paid it all, right? Holy, holy, holy. You're holy, robed in glory, but you came here to show us grace through Jesus to pay it all. We're completely rescued once for all through the finished work of Jesus Christ by only believing and trusting in him. Not an easy believism, oh yeah, I believe that, but I'm talking about, no, not oh yeah, I believe that, but I believe it. And I wanna turn and I wanna follow Christ. That's the kind of belief, it's a, it's a repentant faith. And if all you have is a, yeah, I believe that. I believe that all my life. Yeah, I, I believe that. You ain't got nothing. All you got is facts in your head. You need faith in your heart. And that comes from God Almighty. And you ought to get down on your knees today, whether that's physically or right there in your chair you're sitting in, you ought to cry out to God, oh God, grant me a repentant heart. One who truly believes this truth, not just because my wife believes it, not just because my mama believes it, not because my grandparents brought me to church or drug me to church or whatever it is, but Lord, because, because you've done a miracle in me. I can't go anywhere else. Ask God to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel. And it may be by going through these steps of repentance with someone, they may come to the realization 
that the reason they're so slow about repenting is possibly because they never were brought to repentance to begin with, but yet in that process they may come to repentance and faith in Jesus. So love them enough. Love them enough to do what Scripture says and love the lost enough to go to them and tell them about what Christ has done once for all on the cross. Would you bow your head with me? Tim's going to come and lead us in singing this closing hymn. And when we stand and sing together, we're going to praise our God together. But as we do so, I'll be standing at the front singing with you. And if you'd like to come during that time and talk with me about something, we can pray. You know, I know there's not a lot of time up here at the front, it seemed like, to talk. But, but please do so if you feel led to. Or you can seek me out at the end of the service. And I'll be standing at the back doors and talk to you then. But just let me be very clear. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And if you don't have true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will certainly be punished for your sin and you will go to that place called hell. And we don't wish that on anybody. And I'd love to talk with you about how God may be at work in your heart in relation to that. If you professed faith in Jesus, but you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, Man, that's, you're commanded to do so. I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Father, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us, loving your sheep, loving your little ones so much that you would give instruction to the disciples and thus to the church that you've built about how we might exemplify and show that love to one another to your little ones who are going astray, that we might love them, to rescue them, to see them not plunge headlong. That these steps of love may be the means of their repentance. And Father, we do pray for those among us hearing this message that they're not sure if they died to go to heaven. They're really not sure. Father, I pray that you'd grant a desire for them to know and I pray that you'd grant a hatred of their own sin, a conviction about it. Let them see the, the finished work of Jesus, that what Jesus has done has paid it all on the cross, and they would repent and trust alone in Christ, and that you would be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this morning. You come if God's speaking to you, and we'd love to talk with you as we stand and sing.
is the gospel. It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. 
Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.